Hi everyone, welcome to Crime Science. In this podcast, we aim to explore the science of crime and the practical application of the science for loss prevention and asset protection practitioners, as well as other professionals. Co-hosts Dr. Reed Hayes of the Loss Prevention Research Council and Tom Meehan of Control Tech discuss a wide range of topics with industry experts, thought leaders, solution providers, and many more. On today's episode, Dr. Ben Stickle, Associate Professor of Criminal Justice Administration at Middle Tennessee State University, discusses property crime including metal theft and porch piracy, crime prevention, and much more. We would like to thank Bosch for making this episode possible. Take advantage of the advanced video capabilities offered by Bosch to help reduce your shrink risk. Integrate video recordings with point-of-sale data for visual verification of transactions and exception reporting. Use video analytics for immediate notification of important AP-related events. And leverage analytics metadata for fast forensic searches for evidence and to improve merchandising and operations. Learn more about extending your video system beyond simple surveillance in Zones 1 through 4 of LPRC's Zones of Influence by visiting Bosch online at BoschSecurity.com. All right, well, welcome to another episode of Crime Science, the podcast, broadcast from the University of Florida, an LPRC broadcast, and I'm joined as every episode with Tom Meehan, longtime APLP practitioner uh, and VP at Control Tech. And today our special guest is uh, Dr. Ben Stickle from Middle Tennessee State University. And Ben and I have been conferring recently on some mutually beneficial research um, that we think can not only be rigorous research, but uh, help drive how we operate out there uh, in LP and with law enforcement, but most importantly, have a greater outcome. So, Ben, welcome today to Crime Science. Thank you for having me. Okay, so the way Ben and I have uh, had started conferring is like uh, what we're doing in, in our networking with uh, like-minded criminologists. And by like-minded, anybody that's listened to any episode of Crime Science knows that uh, we're talking about environmental criminology by and large, uh, where we're looking at how uh, the natural, social, digital environment um, shapes human behavior, enables human behavior, um, even encourages human behavior differences. And so uh, the idea is that uh, by doing rigorous research, uh, particularly in the field, we can better uh, change the environment or things about the environment to maybe change behavior uh, in our, to our benefit um, and not spend quite as much time on uh, criminality and the, the, the grassroots of why an individual is deviant or more deviant. Um, And so in this case, too, we've been talking uh, specifically about theft of precious metals or in particular copper since it uh, affects uh, all types of places from residential and commercial environments and certainly in retailing in addition to the commercial environment, uh, those members of ours that sell copper. And so looking at, at those dynamics and what are some opportunities to Uh, suppress and reduce that problem. And then the same thing with porch piracy. Um, And and again, with our almost 70 retail chains, almost every one of them uh, is involved in omni-channel and is delivering packages. um, And they want to get along with their customer. They want to feel valuable. And so what can we do to get better there? So Ben, with that long-winded setup, can you tell me a little bit about how you think about, let's go to porch piracy. How do you think about it? Um, and what are you trying to find out to learn more about uh, porch piracy, porch theft, package theft that might inform better practice? Well, sure. I appreciate that introduction. Uh, following in line with what you said, trying to understand how you know, the environment uh, influences behavior, 
to some degree. And uh, what we realized is that there's very little information known about uh, porch piracy. It probably caught my attention the same way it has uh, most of uh, the listeners is that uh, you've seen a humorous video on YouTube or something like that of someone either stealing something or uh, there was one that caught my attention a couple of Christmases ago where someone broke a leg in the process of stealing uh, some packages. And I got thinking about um, this crime. And, you know, this is a difficult crime to uh, stop. It seems like it's uh, fairly easy to do. It uh, doesn't take a lot of uh, skill uh, to really walk up and snatch a, a package off someone's front porch or uh, somewhere like that and get away. And the more I began to look at this, the more I realized that no one had really done a lot of research on this. And coming from a practitioner background, uh, I really wanted to be able to answer just some basic questions. So who is doing this? Uh, how is it really done? How often is it done? And uh, some other questions. And what I quickly found out was there's not a lot of answers to some of these questions. We don't know how often this happens. It's not uh, a specific um, category of theft that's kept or recorded by most uh, either police or even in the industry, uh, I think it oftentimes is included with just a, a general loss in the last mile or something of that nature and not always delineated for how that loss or that shrink actually occurs. And so I had to turn my attention to what I did know. And what I did find was a bunch of videos online about, uh, you know, surveillance cameras watching these thefts occur. And so I, I kind of turned my focus in that direction and uh, look from a prevention perspective and from what we call crime scripts. And so that would be looking at how offenders tend to operate inside of an environment. And so I, I reviewed these videos to try and find out, you know, how they approached, uh, what they did when they got to the front porch, and basically how they took the package and escaped, looking for different ways we can interrupt that script. So how can we uh, take action that would interrupt the theft from actually either occurring before, during, or after uh, the actual theft. And so that's really the, the genesis of where I started looking at this. There's certainly a lot more to do and uh, started with looking at some of the videos about uh, how it actually occurs. No, that's fantastic. And um, again, our listeners will note that we're always looking for multiple measures and multiple methods that we can learn more about uh, the problem and how to better solve that and how our tools work, how they actually work. So um, I love the idea like you're doing, looking at video, um, understanding what's going on, um, how these people are working, who's doing it, how, who, what, when, where, why, and how of the problem. What are some initial things, uh, Ben, that you're seeing in the video data that you're reviewing as far as who's involved and how are they working these thefts? Sure. That's a very good question. And unfortunately, the research that I did is – probably not really applicable to say this is generally the type of person who's doing this because we we picked and chose videos that met a number of criteria and so um, it's not a, you know uh, a random uh, study that's going to give us you know a real strong outcome so some of the demographics I'll say with basically that caveat is for the videos we watched this was true but this may not be a trend across every community and across uh, countries. But we noticed some interesting things. There was a very even split between men and women, which was a little unusual, given that uh, generally men commit more crime than women. Uh, so it was actually about 50-50 for men and women who were in the videos. And that was a little bit uh, different, like I said, than a lot of other traditional types of crime. Uh, this universally occurred during the daytime, and we weren't really sure whether that's an effect of maybe videos take better 
image during the day, or it could be that, you know, if you're walking around the neighborhood at night, you can't see the package, and therefore you're not going to walk up to a house to steal it. Uh, but we noticed they were all done during the day, about 50 split for men and women. Um, there were teams that would work sometimes. Usually the other person was like a driver, so they'd pull up to the house and the other person would get out. Um, so we began noticing some unusual, uh, at least what we think are different uh, circumstances like that uh, where it occurred. Excellent. So what are some of the dynamics you're seeing in the data set that you've got? As you say, it's it's got some range restriction. It's purposeful. It's not uh, a randomized, large randomized sample. But uh, what are you seeing in your sample? Um, what are some of the actions that you're seeing that may be systematic, may be telling, and maybe something that could help us more rapidly detect um, the, the problem or individuals starting before they're even starting or as they are um, and things like that. Is there anything coming out of your data in that way? Well, some of the more interesting facts we didn't actually report on. So when I you know, publish a paper at this level, it needs to be supported by the data that's in it. But there were some things that I noticed that will inform my thinking moving forward. Um, for example, the videos generally just showed the theft. And there were a few videos that had, you know, several seconds before and after, but people would just basically take the clip of the theft and post it on YouTube. I would love to have seen what happened before. And I, I preface my comment that way because there were a few videos that would have, you know, a minute before and a minute after. And in some of the videos, we would see people kind of drive by a couple of times. Maybe they'd see a package, they'd drive by, they'd turn around, they'd come back. We saw this with a few folks who were walking as well. They'd kind of walk by the house, see the package, come back by, look again, um, and then approach. So it's possible that there is some um, casing going on where they're kind of looking to see who's around, who's at home. Uh, they might be driving purposely through neighborhoods. Uh, we saw in at least one video, and again, we didn't report on it in this current study because it was just the one time, but we're pretty sure we saw this car following closely behind a delivery vehicle. And so we have some concern that there might be people uh, who are more organized and are actually following behind the delivery vehicle um, a few minutes behind and then going up to each house and taking some of the packages. So that's definitely a concern. We did see some folks who were um, using what we termed as a dummy package. So it looked like it was a small empty box or maybe they had a clipboard with some type of paper on it. They would approach the house and um, look around, take the package that was there and then leave. Our thought process is that maybe people, if they were caught, so if the neighbor was home or if the homeowner saw them on their front porch, they could then pass off and say, well, I'm delivering this other package or something of that nature. So there is, uh, to some degree, in addition to people who can just walk by and swipe a package very easily, there appears to be another group of uh, individuals who are a little more organized, putting some thought into this. Uh, one video, for example, had a, a delivery service a jacket on, um, whether that person was employed by said service, I have no idea, uh, but they were clearly just out stealing packages. Uh, so there is some effort by some more um, complex uh, theft, so to speak, uh, to systematize this, make this more effective if in fact someone was to uh, stop them. The other thing um, that we noticed is generally people seem to approach the property fairly slowly. So they would drive and park in the front or often, I think about a quarter of the time, they actually pulled in the driveway, which I thought was interesting, get out of the car and walk rather slowly to the front door. 
they would take the package and their retreat or their exit would be a little bit quicker. Um, so maybe something to look for is from a neighborhood perspective is anyone who's um, approached a house and then kind of runs away quickly. Of course, that would get most of our attention, um, but definitely something we should um, consider. So those are just some of the things that, that jumped out from the research. No, that's good stuff. And um, I know we, uh, we've put together a little matrix of what we think using situational crime prevention from uh, Ron Clark. Uh, and others, uh, but come up with a, a matrix design specifically for, in this case, porch or package uh, theft piracy. Um, to start, how do we look at what's good, better, best maybe? And this is our going in. This generates our hypotheses to start to test in a small way and then going larger. Um, but uh, but it, it starts with something that you, you mentioned that you teased out, and that is if if a bad guy, if the offender, if the victimizer doesn't know there's a package, then that, that first domino is probably not going to fall. And so that's, all right, what are ways that we can uh, not allow or disallow or, uh, the offender, whether they're walking by or riding a bike or driving by or whatever it might be, or live nearby in a corridor in a, in a multi-residential uh, environment or a commercial environment, that they don't know that there's a package present. Um, and then further, if they do notice a package, that it doesn't look like it might be all that valuable or worth their time. And then we go from there. So that was that was pretty significant. Um, and so that's what we're always looking. How do we triangulate your data with others, ours, and so on to, all right, this seems to be telling a story a certain way. What are the implications here that we could start to test um, some countermeasures along that line? Um, let me go over to you, um, Tom. What are some of your thoughts about what Ben's doing, uh, again, with, say, copper, with um, porch piracy or in some of his work? Any thoughts there? So um, first, uh, you know, uh, congratulations on the book. I haven't had a chance to read it, and I'll get to the metal theft in just a minute. I wanted to just focus on porch piracy. And throughout your research, uh, have you seen any type of countermeasures or any type of deterrence that's working, whether it be camera position, signage is there anything that seems to be slowing this down or deterring folks in the videos that you're seeing well, that's a very good question and again it's a difficult one to answer with the data that i had so i thought it was interesting that cameras did not seem to affect anything about this crime right it's every single one of these that i looked at almost 70 were clearly recorded on video um, and so at least in those cases the thieves either were not aware or it didn't seem to care that the cameras were present. Now, the difficulty is because of the study design, it's hard for me to say, well, maybe, uh, maybe cameras do make a difference and that's why you know, I don't have any of those uh, you know, thefts on video. Uh, but it is interesting that cameras, even a lot of these appeared to be coming from a doorbell camera, um, didn't seem to slow down the thieves, so to speak. And I think that uh, as, as Dr. Hayes said, the the best thing would be to conceal the package or item so it's not as obvious. We found that there were fewer thefts the further back from the roadway that the house was. So if your house is further away from the street, I guess it's just less likely for someone to see a package that's up there on your front porch. Uh, similar concept, the smaller the package, the less likely it was to be stolen as well in the small sample that we had. So uh, being able to conceal the package is really important. Um, at least that's my you know, primary thought here. So whether that is just setting the package behind um, a bench 
or something, uh, maybe you have a planter, uh, a plant that's on your front porch, setting it behind there, um, or anything you can do to kind of conceal the package, even if you just had an open top box, for example, that didn't have a lock on it, you just set the package inside of it, someone from the street wouldn't see that. And so, again, you're changing the environment dynamics and, and probably reducing the likelihood of crime because someone would then have to go up to every single porch looking to see if there's a package. And that's uh, effort that probably would not be taken on um, by a thief. Not, not all thieves, not all situations, but that would probably um, be really um, helpful. So I'm not really sure how cameras will play into this. Again, I use cameras to get my data, so it's, it's very biased in that. Um, I do have some questions how effective cameras actually are. And I do wonder, um, as they proliferate in society more and more and more, if people will just continue to um, ignore them, so to speak, and continue uh, taking these efforts. Uh, doesn't seem to have effect with this, but I'm not sure how it might work with other areas. And throughout your research, and this, is, this might be a quick yes or no, uh, did you look at uh, the phenomenon of any of these apps or YouTube or Facebook groups where all this information is being consolidated and almost, uh, in some cases, glorified, it becomes fun? Have you seen a trend in app usage? So I know that Ring has their own app, and then there's Nexto. There's many apps where it consolidates these videos and, in some cases, arguably uh, uses it to generate uh, revenue by advertising dollars or share with law enforcement. Did your research had a, did you plan any of that or did you just get videos from wherever they were available? Uh, we just got videos from wherever they were available. We didn't uh, do a very deep dive into the social um, aspect of sharing videos on Facebook or using the neighborhood apps to communicate. Um, we do discuss that that might be helpful. Um, we think there's very likely, uh, you know, a uh, porch pirate, if you will, enters a neighborhood, they're very likely to hit several homes in that neighborhood, we think. Uh, and therefore, it might be helpful to notify other residents and community members that this is going on actively um, so that people can be aware. But I didn't, wasn't able, at least at this stage, to really look at how it impacts it. Um, I do think that there is a great awareness of this crime. And a lot of it is because these videos can be very comical. Uh, we've seen some videos where people booby trap uh, you know, boxes and things like that, and they get, you know, hundreds of thousands of likes. Um, so there is an interesting uh, social dynamic to this that we haven't thoroughly investigated yet. And, uh, so I guess that I probably the answer is still with this research study is, is there, was there any look at, did a lock gate, if you had a gate that you had to open, did that change uh, the way it worked, a lock to, you know, some sort of a barrier to imply trespassing? I know um that's come up questions to me. I've no, I've I've seen videos where people are, you know, forcing open a gate. Was there any in your video research any transition or any change of behavior if there was a gate or a locked gate or a barrier to get to the package? That's a really good question. And previous research for other types of crime and trespassing would say in general that a gate uh, and a fence is very helpful to deter people from entering the property. Um, we found gates and or a fence in five of these cases, and in none of them did it deter anyone. They either, either the gate was unlocked and they just went right in. Uh, a couple of cases, they just jumped over the fence. Um, and in one case in particular, the front porch had a, uh, just the front porch had like uh, iron bars on it. And the, uh, the thief uh, simply got a uh, tree branch and coaxed, if you will, over. It took about uh, 10 minutes to get the box close enough to the bars that he could then slide it through and 
and walk off with it. So we didn't see that uh, gates or fences necessarily deterred this, but I would want to have a, a larger sample before I said, you know, uh, adamantly whether that was effective or not. And then in your research, were you able to, because you may not have been able to determine um, where these videos were from? Is there a demographic component here that drives it one way or another? Uh, no, we, we really weren't. Uh, just talking amongst the, we had four people who reviewed these videos. Talking amongst ourselves, we felt like uh, it seemed like quite a few from a um, West Coast type environment, just background looking at some of the types of styles of houses and trees and things. Uh, but that was really, it wasn't a research question per se, and, and we don't really know. It just struck us that there seemed to be a lot from that side of the country. Uh, but again, it was very difficult to tell in some cases and see anything um, to really give us a lot of firm indication for that. It, you know, it sounds like too um, in our con you know in reading through the initial report that Ben's got, and Ben uh, graciously came into Gainesville, and we got to spend the day with him and confer and share ideas and research um, and tour the venues and things. But um, you know, the, right now we're sort of at the exploratory phase, and so I, I really, really like the questions that you're posing, Tom. Um, and it's a, it's an issue that we have in research. You know, is always like, you know, the sampling. We start there. Um, and so it's pretty restricted in that we don't have this mix of all these places that have a package that's either visible or not. And then now if it's, say, visible, then what measures are in place? And then do we see – so we just don't have that heterogeneity, that difference, that variance there to see before or after. So, But what happens in this at this phase is – is a, an incredible exploration and saying, okay, well, here are things that we think we're seeing. Here's things that we're seeing together and not seeing and so on. But in this case, these are all events that happened. So we don't, so if it, whatever was deployed didn't work, it, but you all know that again, anybody on this podcast, and I know Tom and Ben know this and it's dosing too, right? Do cameras work or not? Well, what's it look like? Where is it? What are you doing to prime it? Um, what's been the, the offender's experience with cameras and on and on. And, um, and so how do we do these things and do them better? But I did want to touch real quickly on another thing I thought was fantastic you brought up, Tom, and that's this, you know, the ring or other neighborhood or community um, collective action. You know, is, does this work or how would we make it work or work better? Um, those are really good research questions that have real validity. And I think that's something that uh, as we try and work with, with uh, our members, um, and we include many, if not most of the guys that, that are delivering to your homes, our homes, um, we, I think we have the opportunity. Does herd immunity work? Does group immunity or collective action work? Um, and Ben, you teased out a great point. Well, they don't seem to go in a neighborhood or a complex and take one. They may take more than one. And so if you knew that there was an attempt made in that local space or place, could that alert help others in the near term, much less now that community is alerted and then maybe something comes to help in the longer term. But that, that's, just, that's just good stuff. And I, I want to ask you, Ben, who all are you working with on your research and how does it work um, at MTSU um, in your research and you're working with undergrads and grad students? Maybe you could kind of talk a little bit about how that works and how you work with your, the students that you're mentoring and, and helping to develop on research. Yeah, I've really enjoyed um, working with students. Um, I left uh, a successful career uh, in public safety um, looking to really uh, work with students and to help them. And it's been really encouraging to find 
uh, students both at the undergraduate and the graduate level who are interested in actually answering some of these questions. And it's, it's nice to see them get excited and, and get engaged with it. And I really enjoy um, teaching them, um, you know, one-on-one -on -one how to think about crime from an environmental perspective um, and really see that, that blossom and take on. So this was kind of the genesis of, a, of a, uh, at the time, an undergraduate student uh, came to me with this thought, and, this, and we worked on this for quite a while. We, uh, she's now a graduate student about to, to graduate soon with her master's and has done some additional work on this topic that we hope to publish soon. Um, but uh, we incorporated another undergraduate student, just a very exceptional student, uh, very good at what he did, and uh, we got him involved. And I needed a little bit of help with some of the math side of it and to evaluate some videos. And my uh, wife teaches math, and so we were able to get her involved to do some of the statistical analysis. So we had this uh, team, so to speak, and you know, we looked at the videos um, independently um, and categorized them and ranked them and identified things. And then uh, we had my uh, wife help and, and do some statistical analysis to say, you know, are we seeing the same thing to make sure that uh, we're actually seeing the same thing? Because when we look at video and you interpret it, we often see different things. And so uh, some things we saw very close to the same and other things are very difficult, such as uh, sometimes uh, the age of an individual was hard for us to agree on. Um, and so by doing this, we're, we're teaching the next generation of people to think um, in a research context, to look for answers and to kind of stand back and, and take a, a large view of what's going on and then to kind of zoom into a specific problem and apply uh, techniques and theory to actually help answer uh, the question. And of course, what's so exciting for me and what I really wanted to do and I'm pleased to see is that this uh, research doesn't stay uh, stuffed up in a university somewhere, but that it actually gets out to those who can actually apply it to, to make some changes, uh, to companies who deliver, to companies who sell, uh, to the police who investigate these types of crimes, to neighborhood watch groups who are trying to prevent them, uh, so that it can actually be useful to prevent crime. So I certainly would rather prevent it than to you know, respond or have to investigate it later. So it's been a really neat experience to help people, uh, some students to come through this uh, process and to find things that they're interested in and to learn on a hands-on way how to prevent crime. That's great. And, um, you know, the, the fancy term is translational criminology, right? We're taking something from, you know, the lab to practice, uh, S2P, science to practice. And you, you can rest assured that we are, we're ginning up now to start to move your initial paper and with a little summary, an action summary for our members in our S2P, you know, we're, uh, we're, we're going to be putting it out in our working groups. Uh, make it part of a webinar, hopefully with you, and then uh, also uh, something that we put out at our um, theft summit and at the impact conference in October. So that's all huge and critical, like you're saying, to take uh, research that's either suggestive, directional, or even uh, somewhat is very actionable. So um, I appreciate that part. Um, one other question I had was, um, what does it look like as far as getting the resources that you need uh, to to conduct your research? Um, we know that we're that's a big part. It's it's not about the money. It's always about the money. So um, you know, what are sources or ways that you all uh, can help get to, uh, some of the resources you need with your students and you and others in conducting your research? Sure. Well, uh, yes. You you mentioned money is you know always the issue. Unfortunately. Uh, so there's a, there's a small degree that, you know, some, some time to be able to look at these 
um, issues is important. Um, and the way that works in academics is uh, usually there's a little bit of funding which helps release, uh, release some time for me to actually focus on this uh, and maybe for some students to do it as well. Um, at, for this specific um, issue, in, in addition to a little bit of funding, a very important component of this is actually tracking where and when this happens. So to my knowledge, there, there may be one police department in the country that I'm aware of that really keeps track of what we're terming here porch piracy. Otherwise, it just falls into a general category of theft that might include anything from um, shoplifting to uh, taking gas to stealing uh, something from someone's house uh, to stealing a purse. And so there's not a distinguishing type of theft that this falls into. So it's a very, very difficult to track from a statistical standpoint when this happens, how often it happens, who the victims are, is anyone ever arrested for it, um, and things like that. But that's not the only issue. The other issue is, and, and the next study we'll have uh, coming out soon also addresses this, what do people do when they're victims of porch piracy? And initially what we're finding is only uh, less than a quarter even reported to the police. So there's a huge um, um, issue with this type of crime occurring. The police don't know about it. And if they do, they don't have a system to track it very well to allow us to look into it. And so we're left not knowing much about the crime. And so in addition to, you know, having some resources to help research it, um, having some, some numbers about it would be very helpful too. And so um, companies who do any type of fulfillment, whether they're just handling the delivery aspect, last mile omni-channeling, or actual sellers themselves who have some data on this would be really helpful to kind of look at and say, where is this happening? What are the trends? Uh, when is it happening? Is it a certain type of uh, package? And, and some of these details uh, that we really need you know, cooperation from folks who want to help us look at this issue to kind of get some of that information. And then we can really uh, start to move on understanding when it occurs and where and, and other questions like that. That That's excellent. Uh, good feedback. Um, and like you say, you know, the resources to get out there and collect the data, move around travel and things like that are what we're talking about, but just as critical and sometimes more so is what you're talking about, access to data. Um, to video feeds, to uh, events, and like you say, there's a lot of problems and issues with trying to get um, data from official records since it's just not coded that finely. Uh, we were hoping with, you know, as we move from the normal UCR to NIPERS and so on, that we would have a little more definition there. But um, that that's all very helpful, and hopefully our listeners to to see. Look, this is what we need. We always need good data, but the data need to be um, finer and finer and finer cut, finer cut, so that we can get to uh, more detail to help look for opportunities to deter and disrupt um, these offenders. Tom, let me go over to you. I know you had some uh, thoughts around metal theft, copper theft, and uh, anything there uh, from you. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, uh, I think the porch piracy is fascinating. I also think the videos bring it to light and kind of make it a, a a viral subject. I mean, I literally every day see it. But metal theft is something uh, actually throughout my career I dealt with and have just a couple questions on, but and certainly am no expert on it. Um, today, what is where what is if if you can classify it the biggest place where metal theft is occurring? Well, let me. Uh, bridge these two uh, topics together as I answer your question. 
um, and to, to continue off what Dr. Hayes said. So the best um, prevention techniques are very specific. In fact, they only really work if they're specific, which is why I like to look at specifically uh, package theft as opposed to just theft in general. And the same is true for uh, metal or copper theft. And so it also is a field where we spend, and we have the exact same um, problem because we just don't know hardly anything about copper or metal theft. Um, we have some uh, raw data uh, from some insurance companies looking at people who file claims for metal being stolen, um, but that's really about all that we get, and those are generally numbers presented as if this state has a higher proportion than other states. Um, and so same idea, the police don't generally keep track of metal theft separately, and if they have, it's only been very recently in the last couple of years. And so we don't really know a lot about metal theft, kind of in the similar vein as we don't know a lot about um, our package theft either. Now to answer your question, um, where does it occur more? That's very difficult. Um, anywhere there's lots of metal that has low guardianship, and so by that we mean uh, there's not a system there to either a person who watches it or a uh, motion sensor or a camera or something like that tends to be where we see a lot more of this. So uh, looking at air conditioners that are set in alleyways um, or looking at power stations, substations that are not monitored on a regular basis or an abandoned house uh, tends to be where you see a lot of metal stuff. So places like that where there's a decent amount of metal uh, that is not um, observed or guarded well tends to be where we see it more. But again, I'm going to say with the caveat is we think, right, um, because we don't have a lot of data on that either. And my second question, which is uh, you answered actually another question I had by by saying that on the classification and the record keeping. I guess my second question is, Do is there any jurisdictions or anywhere where scrapyards are required to keep type of records that a pawn shop would to help deter it in your experience? Yes, the, the the short answer is yes. Most states have moved to legislation requiring scrapyards to keep um, a variety of information about the metal that they purchase. Um, the, still not sure how effective this is. Um, in fact, I have another data set that I'm working with right now uh, to take a look at this. Uh, very conveniently, I was able to get uh, uh, two years of uh, metal theft data um, before this law was passed and then two years after. So we're actually be able to really see is there a difference in the rate of theft once some of these requirements have changed. Uh, but the requirements vary greatly by state. So some states uh, will pay you in cash if you have an ID. Some states don't require an ID to sell metal. Uh, some states require a check to be mailed to the address on the driver's license uh, 14 days later. And so it's really kind of all over the board um, by state for what the requirements are. And so uh, trying to find out if any of these requirements do work and if so, which ones they are, is definitely a question that needs to be answered because there's also um, a degree to which some of these rules and regulations kind of hamper business. And so there are a couple of states, and I think they've backed off of this, that required a uh, scrapyard to hold the metal that they purchased for sometimes up to 30 days uh, in case it was stolen for the police to come in and investigate. Well, the problem from a business perspective is uh, the price of copper and other metals changes hourly and definitely daily. So you could purchase uh, copper uh, for one price, and if you have to hold it by law for 30 days, 
uh, you know, you could lose money um, in that way. So there has to be a way to balance uh, the ability of, of uh, companies and organizations to actually effectively run a business uh, yet still prevent the crime from happening. So teasing out what policy works is going to be very important as we move forward because um, that is a crime that kind of comes and goes with popularity. And we're kind of at a low point at this time, but I do think that it will it will rise again and uh, hopefully we'll be better ready from a policy perspective to know what works the next time. I appreciate that. That Good stuff. Um, and I think, you know, one thing I want to call out very quickly was um, I know that Ben and I are both um, in, try to incorporate leverage uh, routine activity, um, that perspective, as well as rational choice, uh, but all different theory tools that we might have out there, frameworks to make sense of the world, but make sense of crime, and most importantly, what can we effectively do about it? Um, and so when you're talking about, well, you've got a, a desirable or suitable target like copper, uh, because the dynamics are there's a constructions up in xyz areas and the demand goes up and therefore the price goes up uh, but then you combine that like you said with a it was poorly guarded it was vulnerable it's in an alleyway um, it's low light there's no cameras you know or humans there and so on so guardianship is low and things like that and now you've got this likely or motivated offender that is aware of it or comes into con opportunistically wanders across it. So those components come together in place and time. And so we're looking at, okay, how do we disentangle that crime script that what all do you have to go through here to, to find it, take it, turn it into cash or whatever it might be. Um, and then what are the, what are the intervention points? So I really appreciate that, Tom, that question tees that out and Ben, Thanks for including that. We're always trying to make those points to help us understand. Go ahead. Back and to let you. me mention uh, something real quick that I thought was interesting that, that you just talked about that. So when I, with the metal theft, I actually went out and interviewed people in the field um, who, who were engaged in this actively. So active ethnography, uh, crime ethnography, if you want to call it that, where I actually went out and interviewed and watched people. Uh, and, and one of the consistent things they said, I asked them, I said, well, you know, how does, how does any of this affect you? You know, if there's a dog, if there's a camera, uh, what if the price is high and low? And what overall from the actual thieves who were actually going out and doing it, what I found is that um, a fence, a dog, a camera would cause them to slow down a little bit. They might uh, try and come in from a different angle. They might wait till the neighbor went to bed, um, something like that. So it just, it altered sometimes their, uh, the time uh, so they slowed them down a little bit. And then the other thing that I thought was interesting is they said that when the price was higher, sorry, when the reward was higher, they just took more risks. So they might go out and steal one air conditioner, but if the price was really high, they might go out and take two or three tonight. And so it, the price changed what they were willing to do and how risky of a behavior they were willing to take, which I thought was interesting. I've not seen that in a lot of literature, a lot of research. Um, but we forget sometimes it's not just about it. It's not to say yes or no, will someone commit a crime or not? Uh, but sometimes the price and the other circumstances dictate what they're willing to actually do uh, to get uh, that item uh, or to commit that crime. And I thought that was interesting. No, it is. Rational choice is so messy. And we know there, while there's some rationality to it, like, hey, I could get money or I could get more money now. Uh, or I know where this is that I could make money and things, but it's pretty bounded or restricted as we know from the research. And, and like you say that these, the components, the calculus here, but the inputs that go in, they, they are all dependent on each other and they change 
And that's why we talk so much, like you know, about situational crime prevention, but that that situational effort that we make or the effort we make on that type of environment, it's still going to be responded to differently or differentially by different people. All right. Well, I would really uh, enjoyed the conversation today. Um, and I want to thank Dr. Ben Stickle uh, from Middle Tennessee State University, uh, Tom Meehan, of course, from Control Tech, and our producer here uh, for Crime Science Podcast, Kevin Tran. Um, and really want to thank mostly, of course, uh, as uh, always, um, our listeners. And uh, please, if you've ever got any suggestions about Crime Science, the podcast, what we should talk about, who we should talk about it with, um, anything we can do to prove um, and get you the information that's going to help you get better and better at uh, reducing crime and loss. We're here for you. So signing off from Gainesville, Florida. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Crime Science Podcast presented by the Loss Prevention Research Council and sponsored by Bosch Security. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find more Crime Science episodes and valuable information at lpresearch.org. The content provided in the Crime Science Podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for legal, financial, or other advice. Views expressed by guests of the Crime Science Podcast are those of the authors and do not reflect the opinions or positions of the Loss Prevention Research Council.